going up to Jerusalem, took the 12 disciples aside on the road and said to them, Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify. And the third day, he will rise again. This is the third time that Jesus mentions his identity, his mission, and his destiny. We saw this the first time in Matthew chapter 12, verses 28 through 42. Again in chapter 16, verses 21 through 28. The king's teaching on the way to Jerusalem is also going to provide us with a sneak peek of the remaining chapters in Matthew's gospel. Behold, we're going to Jerusalem. That's what we're going to see in chapter 21, chapter 22, chapter 23, 24, 25, 26. The next several chapters, we're going with him. And the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the scribes. That's chapter 26, verses 47 through 75. They will condemn him to death. That's chapter 26, verse 66. And deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify. That's going to occupy all of chapter 27, verses 1 through 56. Here... For the first time, Jesus is going to specifically point out the manner of his death. He's going to be crucified. And the third day, he's going to rise again. And we'll see that in chapter 28, verses 1 through 20. The words are prophetic utterances that describe in chilling detail the events that must unfold. But the prophecy also includes the king's disciples. Remember what has already happened. They have decided that they're going to follow Jesus. We sing that song. I have decided to follow Jesus. And rarely will we ask or Look for the answer to the question, where exactly are you going and what are you going to do when you get there? He's going to Jerusalem. He's going to die. But he's also going to come back to life. The road that leads to Jerusalem is a road to Calvary and a cross. This is the road marked with suffering. Though there's pain in the offering, Calvary and a cross is going to lead to a glorious resurrection. And the reason why this becomes so important is it isn't simply a description of the king's future. It's a description of each and every person who has purposed in their heart that they're going to follow Jesus because his future will be your future. That is, of course, if you know him, if you love him, if you believe in him. 
And so we see in verse 17, look what it says. Now, Jesus, going up to Jerusalem, took the 12 disciples aside on the road and said to them, the road to Jerusalem, by the way, is always up. It's almost on a little pinnacle in the center of the country, so that if you're coming from the north, you go up to Jerusalem. If you're making your way from the east to the west, you go up to Jerusalem. If you make your way from the south, you go up to Jerusalem. And for those of you who, who like geography or thinking it through, Jesus and the disciples are in a place called Perea, which is east of of the River Jordan and a little bit north, and he is going to leave Perea by way of Jericho, and then he's going to take the winding road that leads from Jericho up to Jerusalem. And of course, Jerusalem is the most important city in the world. This is the city that was set aside by God to reveal his son. This is the city that's mentioned not once or twice, not even a hundred times or two hundred times or five hundred times, six hundred times the city of Jerusalem is mentioned in the scriptures. But it's also not just simply called Jerusalem. It's called the city of God. It's called the city of Jehovah in Psalm 46.4. It's called the Lord's city. It's called the holy city. It's called Zion. This city, more than any other city in the world, arouses the deep emotion and sentiment of the Lord Jesus. It is this city that will give him such great joy, but it is also this city that will give him such great pain and such great sorrow. This is the city that he will weep over later in Matthew chapter 23, verse 37, when he says, how like a mother's hen I would have gathered you together, but you wouldn't come. He will talk about this city as the city that stones the prophets. He will talk about this city as the city that God has set aside to execute the prophets. And so... It's the object of prophecy more than any other city. Jesus predicted that this city's future, Jerusalem, will be trodden down of the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are, are fulfilled, it says in Luke chapter 21, verse 24. It's the city that can never leave the headlines. It's the city that I guarantee you, before you go to bed tonight, will be talked about in the news once again. The Lord Jesus, it says, took the 12 disciples aside. That may not seem like very much to you, but the word took aside has monumental meaning. The Greek word is paraleben, which means took to himself or set aside or set apart for himself. 
It's an expression that's filled with tenderness and warmth and intimacy. Jesus is taking them to aside because he wants them with him. He wants them close to him. He wants them present with him. He's going to Jerusalem to face humiliation and torture and death and resurrection, but it's important for him to not go alone. And Jesus doesn't simply take them aside to affirm his affection. But that's part of it. But to prepare them for the journey. Because the events that will come will prove shocking and devastating but needful. One translation says, when Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem, he took the 12 apostles aside privately this is a private conversation between Jesus and the people that he loves it's an intimate time on a deliberate journey with news that could generate confusion and fear maybe even panic But Jesus wants them to know that there's rhyme and reason to what's about to unfold. And it becomes, again, a picture for each and every one of us. In our journey, Jesus will take us aside to himself. He will provide moments of tenderness in the tensions of life. Again, the revelation is is given not to discourage, but to comfort. And it's important that we understand that. Because sometimes when we anticipate pain or hardship, we may be tempted to turn away or shun the future. Imagine you have to go into a future where there's some setbacks, where there's some difficulties, where there's some tragedies. The loss of a loved one, the loss of a friend, the loss of a marriage, the loss of your health. And it seems almost certain that whatever the future holds, it's going to be difficult. But Jesus wants to fortify the disciples. Because rejection and ridicule and persecution are a part of their future. We all find ourselves in different chapters of maturity and accountability and willingness to follow Jesus. And so this revelation is given to the disciples. We also know that their comprehension was limited. Just like yours. Just like mine. I think it's important to remember why Jesus lets us know just a little bit at a time. Because for some of us, it could prove overwhelming. Ronald Boyd McMillan wrote, quote, The meaning of life does not consist in what we make of it, but what God makes of it. And so we visit once again that the meaning of your life isn't simply what you do, 
It isn't simply what you want to do. It isn't even simply what you plan to do. But it's cooperating and submitting to the plan that God has for you. And so we ask the question, what will God make of your life? It's okay for you to pause even at this very moment and consider that just for a moment. Lord, what will you make of my life? What do you have for me? What is the future about to unfold? Difficulty? Yes. Glory? Certainly. Look what it says in verse 18. The Lord Jesus' betrayal and, and, and prosecution in verse 18. It says, Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death. This is the first time that Jesus reveals the place of his betrayal and execution. He is now letting the disciples know it's going to happen in Jerusalem. He also introduces for the first time the involvement of the Gentiles in this process in verses 19 at the beginning of, of the verse. So why is this important? Remember what I've already told you. This is the third time that Jesus has predicted his future. The first time Jesus re revealed the fact of his death and resurrection in Matthew 16, 21. The second prediction added the means Betrayal in chapter 17, verse 22. And so now in this final prediction, we're given more information regarding the prosecution, the trial by the Jewish leaders, and the intimation of a trial by Gentile leaders. In many, in many ways, this is going to again, help them understand about the future. In the time of Jesus, you'll remember that Judea was occupied by Rome. It was governed by a procurator or a governor. And so in many religious and civil matters, the occupation forces would allow the Jews a certain measure of self-governance and autonomy. But they wouldn't allow the local authorities to rule in capital crimes, that is, those that are worthy of death. And so for the Christian, for the Christ lover and the Christ follower, there is a sense in which each and every one of our future with Jesus is going to wind up in Jerusalem now, obviously, some of you may never visit the city in fact. But in faith, you'll go to that place. And you'll experience that moment when Jesus' death will become your death. And for now, there's a betrayer. But the betrayer remains unnamed. And again, that word betrayed conjures an image of one who loves you and then turns on you. Each and every one of us understand at least in part the fact that strangers 
can't betray you. In order to rise to the level of betrayal, it has to be someone you know and someone you love and someone you care about. The prophet Zechariah hinted at this betrayal when he wrote in Zechariah chapter 13, verse 6, the wounds I was given in the house of my friends. In John's gospel, chapter 13, verse 19, there's a reference to his betrayal when we read, now I tell you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you you will believe that I am who I say that I am, or you will believe that I am he. So the prediction isn't just simply a provisional warning in order to give you a heads up. Part of the point is to generate faith inside of you. Particularly for the person who said, wait a minute, are you suggesting to me that being a Christian isn't going to always be Roses? No, there, there's going to be difficulty. There's going to be times of pain and setback. The Christian might face opposition, personal slander, injustice, discrimination, mistreatment. The writer of Hebrews said, Consider Jesus who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you may not grow weary and lose heart, it says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 3. In other words, the Bible doesn't invite us simply to evaluate our own circumstances, but to consider our Savior, to consider Jesus, consider what's happened to him. Jesus has already preached in Matthew chapter 5, verse 11, blessed are you when people falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. And again, we're living in a world where that's counterintuitive. When Jesus says, oh, how happy, oh, how blessed. Hey, you should, be, you should be deeply, deeply ecstatic when people begin to treat you like they treated Jesus. But it's something that's very much disconnected from the way we think and the way we respond. Do you mean if I follow Jesus into the future? It might include discrimination, deprivation. Acts 8, 33, we read, in his humiliation, Jesus was deprived of justice. He wasn't given justice. He was deprived of justice. And so, in verse 19, it says, the Lord Jesus' delivery and execution. It says, and deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify. The Lord Jesus is going to be delivered to the Gentiles and he's going to join the religious leaders. The Gentiles and the religious leaders are going to unite in what some theologians have called a conspiracy of guilt. So many people ask the question, well, who killed Jesus? Well, the Jews killed Jesus. And the Gentiles killed Jesus. And the people in the past killed Jesus. And the people in the present killed Jesus. And the people in the future killed Jesus. The writer of Hebrews said in Hebrews 13.3, 
Remember those in prison as if you were their fellow prisoners. And those who are mistreated as if you yourself were suffering. The part of the point of that passage is the idea that these people are in prison and they're being mistreated because of their love for Jesus, their commitment to Jesus, their willingness to serve Jesus, the source for torture and imprisonment and martyrdom can come from the police. It can come from radical extremists. It can come from militias. It can come from religious groups. It can come from the state. It can, it can come from your family. Christians all over the world are falsely accused and falsely imprisoned and experience violence on a daily basis. At this very moment, right as I speak, 100 million Christians are living in areas where they face persecution and another 400 million Christians are living in areas under the threat of persecution. Out of the 1 billion plus Christians in the world, half of that billion are under the threat of immediate hostility and difficulty or they face it in the not too distant future. The cross will come to incorporate what has been called the great exchange. It's interesting to me David Wells points out the difference between the word crucify and cross. In verse 19, when it says, deliver to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and to crucify, crucify is a description of a painful execution that's singular, it's individual. People didn't share a cross. Each and every one of them was assigned their own. Cross is a term that for the Christian will come to mean so much more than just simply that word crucify. Like I said, it will come to mean a great exchange. On the cross, Jesus will suffer and die for sin. Your sin, your punishment will become his punishment. His righteousness will become your righteousness. And so that's the difference between crucify, which is a descriptive term about the way that you're going to die, and cross, which is a word that Christians use to describe something amazing that takes place. It is the heart and the soul of the gospel. The exchange that takes place because of the sacrifice of Jesus. In the ministry of John the Baptist, Andrew and John heard the Baptist say, quote, Behold the Lamb of God who will take away the sin of the world. And remember, Jesus is taking Andrew and John and Peter and James aside, communicating to them what is exactly going to happen, but for reasons that we don't quite understand. 
they're still not able to connect the dots. They're not able to connect the prophetic dots that have been spoken of in the Bible that has been demonstrated by Jesus. And again, as the events begin to unfold, and this is one of the things that is so interesting to me from the standpoint of being the pastor, and that is sometimes as the, as the events unfold right before your eyes, in your life, that you don't always see the significance of what's happening, of the decisions that are being made, and the directions that you're taking. In Matthew chapter 19, at the end of the verses, it says, it says and on the third day, he will rise again. How did the disciples respond to that prediction? What's interesting to me is the silence at this point in the chapter. And it's going to immediately, in the next section from verse 20 to verse 28, talk about the request of James and John's mother, the, the, the mothers of Zebedee's sons, kneeling down, asking Jesus for something. In other words, it, the, the, the way that the response is, it's, it's very, very interesting. How is it that the disciples are either unwilling or unable to grasp what going on in the passage the disciples you would think that when they hear the words and the third day he will rise again that they'll say something but the words seem drowned out and smothered by the word crucify because the word crucify is so terrifying Maybe they're thinking, well, he's speaking in parables. Jesus spoke in, in parables. Surely this is a parable of some sort in the disciples' minds. So in this private meeting, Jesus reveals that Jerusalem's going to be the place where he dies. But the religious leaders and the Gentile authorities are going to be involved. He's going to be crucified. Three days later, he's going to come back to life. And it makes perfect sense. It makes perfect sense that they don't want him to die. It makes perfect sense that they believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And because he is the son of man, because he is the son of David, because he has adopted the messianic titles. How can he be both king and dead. And Jesus gives his disciples an unwelcome reality check. This unwelcome reality check. Gentlemen, the purpose of our trip to Jerusalem is for me to suffer and die and then come back to life. What's interesting to me about that is you would think that the disciples would say, wait, 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 pause, time out. What do you mean? I think I understand that this isn't an allegory. You're going up to Jerusalem. Clearly, we are on the road to Jerusalem. This isn't some sort of metaphorical, allegorical Jerusalem. This is the real city. We're going to the place that's been set aside for you to be betrayed and arrested and humiliated and killed and come back to life. Why? 
Why does this have to happen? What in the world is your suffering going to accomplish? What in the world is your death going to, to mean? How in the world is this even possible? Because people who are dead don't come back to life. We get that. But we sometimes need to hear it with fresh ears. Imagine a former famous president said, I'm going to Washington, D.C., and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be there for three years, and in the third year, they're going to crucify me. They're going to kill me, and I'm going to come back to life. <laughs> you laugh at the absurdity of such a suggestion. What kind of a person would make that statement? What kind of a person would predict that for themselves and even suggest that they could make it happen? Sometimes the Lord will take us aside privately and communicate with us specifically about some stuff in our life that we don't necessarily want to hear painful diagnosis, a difficult relationship, the tragic circumstances of someone whose life has really gone off the rails. We're given a reality check. We're reminded that there are some things in our lives that are given to us for reasons that we wouldn't want for us. But Jesus is going to invite us to identify with him, to identify with his journey, to identify with his suffering, to identify with his death, and eventually to identify with us in his resurrection. Much of our Christian life is going to be exactly that. Did Jesus experience misunderstanding from the religious leaders? Yes. Does it make sense, more sense, that we might experience misunderstanding from religious leaders? Does Jesus experience hostility from secular sources? Yes. What is it that Jesus cared about? What is it that he pursued? What is it that he valued? What the world values as gain, Jesus says is loss. And so much of our lives are spent in the accumulation of wealth or power or prestige. So much of our life is spent in consumption. So much of our life is spent in distraction. And then for a moment, Jesus will wake you up in the middle of the night and say, I want to have a conversation with you. Absent the consumption and absent the distraction, I want to talk a little bit about your future. Christians aren't immune from wanting honors or recognition or influence, but the road to Jerusalem will lead at first to a place of difficulty and hostility 
and to rest. And in the process, Jesus is going to suffer contempt, mocking, flogging, killing. So what does it mean? What does it mean to be a faithful follower of Jesus? And I'm going to suggest to you that in part, it must mean to identify with Jesus. You mean in the place where he's going and the death that he's going to experience and the resurrection? Yeah. But even more than that, it's to identify with Jesus in every way. Most find it easy to identify with Jesus and his teachings. Even our unbelieving friends who are hostile to Christians and Christianity will read the Sermon on the Mount and they want to identify with Jesus in his teachings. They want to identify Jesus in his love. They want to identify with Jesus in, in his compassion. They want to identify with Jesus in his generosity. But it's way more difficult to identify with him in his suffering. Most will find it difficult to identify with him in his death. And most will find it easy to identify with him in his resurrection and glory. When Jesus says, if I'm going to come back to life, then you're going to come back to life. If I'm going to live, you're going to live. And the place where I'm going to live is the place where you're going to live. Throughout the Old Testament, in many places, like Psalm 22, verses 6 through 8, and Isaiah 50, verse 6, both the psalmist and the prophet Isaiah laid out in careful detail how the Messiah would be executed and that he would suffer, but also that he would come back to life. The future that Jesus has planned is going to include the idea that weakness becomes a direct path to power. And it's something that's so counterintuitive to the way that we think and live and believe that it seems disconnected. The future that Jesus has planned includes the idea that weakness and meekness and humility and submission to his father's will is the path to power. The future that Jesus has planned is going to incorporate the idea that overcoming is greater than deliverance. Because the disciples are stunned. And if someone has communicated with you in confidence, I'm going to a particular place, and I'm going to that place, and I'm going to die, that every molecule in your body is going to say, how can we make sure that that doesn't happen? How can we make sure that the pain and the horror and the difficulty and the tragedy will not occur? The future that Jesus has planned is going to incorporate the idea that overcoming is going to be greater than deliverance. And so we see the example after example that is given throughout the Old Testament. Joseph isn't necessarily delivered from his prison, but he is going to overcome it. Daniel and his friends in the fiery furnace, particularly the friends, they are going to go into a place of profound difficulty. 
You would think that Daniel, before he goes into the lion's den, wouldn't it be way better just to avoid the furnace altogether, avoid the, the lion's den altogether, avoid the cross altogether? But Jesus is going to overcome. And the future that Jesus has planned is going to require that extreme hurt will provide the opportunity to extend extreme forgiveness. And the future, the future that Jesus has planned will not allow death to have the final word. Death will not keep him. He will rise, it says on the third day. And the Old Testament writers pointed to a literal resurrection from the dead in the body. Job, perhaps the oldest book in the Bible, asks that most profound question in Job 14, 14. If a man dies, shall he live again? And then in Job chapter 19, verse 25 through 27, we see Job proclaiming, I know that my Redeemer lives. He shall stand at last on the earth after my skin is destroyed. This I know that in my flesh I will see God. When I shall see for myself and my eyes shall behold and not another. How my heart yearns within me almost 2,000 years before Jesus makes this statement, Job makes the statement that I will see the source of life and redemption with my very own eyes, not figuratively or allegorically or metaphorically. In order for that to happen, Job is going to have to come back to life. In Psalm. 16 verses 9 and 10 it says therefore my heart is glad and my glory rejoices my flesh also shall rest in hope for you will not leave my soul in hell neither will you suffer the holy one to see corruption David affirms his hope not just simply for himself but for the holy one Jesus and by the way this passage is the passage that Peter quotes in Acts chapter 2, verse 24. And Paul quotes in Acts chapter 13, verse 34 through 37 as a reference to the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus predicts his death and his resurrection. But he's not the first person to do it. The New Testament gives several reasons for the resurrection of Jesus. Number one, that Jesus will rise from the dead because of who he is in Acts chapter 2 verse 24. Jesus will rise to fulfill the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel chapter 7 verse 12. Jesus will rise from the dead to be the giver of resurrection life in John chapter 10 verse 10. Jesus will rise from the dead so that he can be the head over the church in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 20. Jesus will rise from the dead 
in order to make our justification complete, Paul says in Romans chapter 4, verse 25, Jesus will rise from the dead, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 20 through 25, as a sort of first fruits. Because everyone will. Everyone will. Not just good people or bad people or even saved people or unsaved people. Everyone will come back to life. Everyone will be evaluated. And Jesus will make the evaluation. Jesus is trying to prepare the disciples for the future and this is going to, again, in the next chapter, prompt a request for glory in the future. And what's interesting about the next segment, the request isn't for God's glory. The request that's going to be made is for personal glory. And what's interesting, in the next segment, Jesus is going to mention a cup and a baptism. He's going to make a reference to suffering and his, and his death on Calvary. Corey ten Boom, the Dutch patriot and the Holocaust survivor said, Never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. Carl F.H. Henry says there's only one real inevitability. It is necessary that the scripture be fulfilled. Things will come and things will go and things will happen. Some will be expected and most will be unexpected. But everything that the scripture says about Jesus will happen. And everything that Jesus says about you will happen. There's a 19th century song that understands that identification by Daniel Whittle. It was called Moment by Moment. He wrote, dying with Jesus by death reckoned mine, living with Jesus a new life divine, Looking to Jesus till glory doth shine. Moment by moment, O Lord, I am thine. Moment by moment, I'm kept in his love. Moment by moment, I've life from above. Looking to Jesus till glory doth shine. Moment by moment, O Lord, I am thine. You know what's interesting about the past? Even pops, contrary to popular opinion, it's unchanging. You know what's interesting about the future? It's open to change by the very choice that you make in the present. What will you choose? Will you choose really to follow Jesus? On the road marked with suffering, though there's pain in the offering, are you willing, willing to understand that 
death might come, but a glorious resurrection is going to be a part of your future. We're going to have communion here, and uh, I'm going to have Carolyn come back up. We're going to sing a song. But what I want, we're, I'm going to just pray for you right now before we have communion, and we're going to sing a song in just a moment. Heavenly Father, Lord, Lord, in this next section, you're going to mention a cup and a baptism to two sons and their mother. They want a future filled with honor, praise, attention, reward. And it's interesting to me, Lord, that I know that there is honor, attention, and reward. But that the honor and the attention and the reward is going to come as a result of Jesus being glorified. And Lord, even as we have communion at this very moment, Lord, I pray for that man or that woman who once again, Lord, would like to identify with you. Lord, you have identified with us in our need for a Savior and the promise of a future. And Lord, we know that you are that Savior. And so we identify with you, Lord, as sinners in need of a Savior. Men and women, Lord, who can experience grace and mercy and forgiveness and hope if we will place our confidence and trust in you. And so, Lord, again, I pray for each and every person within the sound of my voice. I pray for the Christian who once again will take this communion as a, as a sign of love and loyalty to you, as a sign of identification with you, as a sign for a future with you. Lord, we know that it's a cup of suffering. Lord, we know that it's a baptism in blood. And so, Lord, even as we take these elements, Lord, we pray that it wouldn't just be something religious that religious people do, but rather, Lord, as an opportunity to once again declare our love and loyalty to you. Lord, we pray that it would be exactly what it was always intended to be, a private moment, a personal moment, an intimate moment, A time, Lord, where you could get our attention and speak to our hearts and tell us a little bit about the future. In Jesus' name, amen.